Hi, I'm Josh Van Berkel. Welcome to the Activate Christchurch podcast. It's our privilege to share it with you. I hope you enjoy it. And if you ever find yourself in Christchurch, pop in and say hello. We'd love to see you. Thank you, everybody. Very good. Very good. You can be seated. Oh, it's so good to be here with you. If you're the type of following actual Bible, Jonah chapter 4. Uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. It's an honor to be here. It's a new, uh, a new place for me. Thank you for welcoming me uh, as a Christchurch family. And, um, and it's, uh, it's just fantastic to Garth and, and Josh and then the rest of the team. And uh, Jono's here uh, from Equippers. And uh, it's great. And, uh, and so, uh, uh, you legend. How good is that? Um, so afterwards, when this is over in the foyer there, we have a small table set up there with um, um, some resources and audio and video and USB. Uh, it's the new stuff I've done in the last couple years, um, and so you could come pick those things up. The reason we, we do that is because we make money from that, obviously, and we also, we use that, um, the profit from that to minister to the poor and the afflicted. So we give all that away, uh, have for the last 10 years to uh, three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities. And then we have a rescue home in Cape Town that gets girls out of sex trafficking, off drugs, high school educated, and job trained so we could break the cycle of poverty in the Cape Flats, right? So here's all I ask that you do is uh, if you don't want anything, God bless you. I'll see you next time I'm through, all right? If you do want something, if you could come in the first 10 minutes, and grab it. That'd be great because I got to pack it up and uh, and you know take it to the next place. I've got to go to Rotorua uh, tomorrow and then Taronga um, on Thursday. So uh, if you guys uh, if you could do that for me, that'd be fantastic. So I want to speak into when you open the Bible, you want to ask a couple questions. Uh, one, what happened? And two, and more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? So I want to speak into uh, the kind of churches we're trying to build. Um, it's Tuesday night, you're in church, so I'm going to make an assumption that we're all fully devoted followers of Jesus, right? I'm not, like, I'm under no pressure to be an evangelist, which is really good because I'm not a very good evangelist, actually. I'm, I'm a, I am a good teacher, uh, but, I'm, you know, I'm not a very good evangelist. So assuming that everybody here is a fully devoted follower of Jesus, the, the question is, is what kind of a thing we're trying to build because for fully devoted followers of Jesus, we are. We, Jesus is not somebody to believe in. Like if I said, "What makes you a Christian?" You're like, "Well, we believe in Jesus." Well, no, that makes you a demon. Like I, 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 even demons believe in Jesus. Believe, like <laughs> be, belief in Jesus is like what? That, that, that's that, what is that? Jesus is not somebody to believe in. Jesus is somebody to connect to to fundamentally shape the way you see the whole world. And that's, that's two different things. And so as Jesus followers, um, we're called to do things like fulfill Scripture instead of being right about one verse, right? So Jesus called his followers to be people who fulfill Scripture by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you instead of being right about some one verse you could find. Now, had, a third of Jesus' ministry was people trying to get him to be right about one verse in violation of the fulfillment of Scripture by treating others you to have them do to you. So they bring in somebody caught in the act of adultery, and they're like, hey, we have this verse that says you should stone her. And Jesus is like, we're not going to stone her because the God revealed in Christ loves people more than the rules. And um, so we're going to treat her as we would want to be treated because Jesus called his followers to fulfill Scripture, not just be right about one verse you can find, right? And so there's all kinds of compelling things about the way Jesus saw the world because Christianity 101 is God is finally and fully revealed in Jesus Christ. There is not a better update to that, that God is like Jesus, exactly like Jesus. God had always been like Jesus. We did not know that, but now we do, right? And so that's, that's the idea. And so I want to talk about one 
aspect of how Jesus saw the world. Because as Christ followers, we're called not just to believe in Jesus, but to, to endeavor to see the world how Jesus saw the world and see God how Jesus saw God. And, and that's going to make us wrestle with a question. I think this question is really well illustrated in a book called Jonah. Now, I'm going to read from the end of the book of Jonah, uh, which is inappropriate because we've got to sort of, um, got to sort of set it up uh, with some context, all right? So let me just tell um, the entire story of Jonah in about uh, six minutes, all right? And then we'll, then we'll get to the passage, all right? So there's this guy named Jonah. He's the son of Amittai. Uh, he was called uh, by God to speak to Nineveh. Now, uh, now we have to stop because that's really easy to read over, like Jonah's called to Nineveh. But we need a quick history lesson on Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. Um, they were particularly brutal. Most of us are familiar with like the Roman Empire because that's the empire Jesus lived in. And in the Roman Empire, if you crossed the empire, they crucified you, which means they nailed you to two sticks uh, until you suffocated to death. It was quite... Terrible. The Assyrians, if you cross them, they did not crucify you. The Romans invented that. The Assyrians skinned you. They peeled you. They called it filleting or peeling or, the more vernacular for us, skinning people alive. So what they would do is if you crossed them, they would tie you up in front of people and they invented technologies to keep you awake while torturing you, which is why we never want to present God as somebody who has a technology to keep you awake and torture you. This was an Assyrian idea. So they would keep people awake and they would skin them alive in front of people. As a matter of fact, there's an Assyrian emperor named Tiglath-Pileser. Now, Tiglath-Pileser was particularly brutal. Let's let's be merciful to Tiglath-Pileser. Can we just all admit together that if your mom named you Tiglath, you would have issues, right? Who does that to a kid? Oh, great. He looks like a Tiglath, right? So... Tiglath-Pileser was, uh, was particularly brutal. He, um, uh, be- because there are some children in the room, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be accurate, but I'm going to need some of you adults to read between lines. So Tiglath-Pileser sent his military into a, a region of Israel called Samaria, and he ordered the assault, the intimate assault, um, of up, upwards of 100,000 women. And the idea was is that he wanted to create a mixed breed of offspring that would not be accepted by the Jews or by the Assyrians. And, of course, they succeeded in that, which created a whole group of people called the Samaritans. This is where that idea comes from. And, of course, they get banished by the Jews, and they're not accepted by the Assyrians. They become a very oppressed people group. That was Tiglath-Pileser's idea. Tiglath-Pileser also, and I want you to listen to these words very carefully, he mastered the art. So if I, if I said you master the art of something, that takes a lot of practice. And so what he did is he mastered the art of peeling people's faces off. So what he would do is he would have them tied down and he mastered the art of just where to cut and just how deep to cut in order to peel someone's face off to leave them alive. As an example, this is what happens when you mess with us. This was Tiglath-Pileser. This was Nineveh. As a matter of fact, there's this one story um, from the Assyrian histories that said there was a small rural farming town. So a small rural farming town. Think, uh, uh, what's that, Timaru or whatever. Or or, or actually, uh, think, uh, uh, no, no, it's less. Think Gore. Gore. They would think Gore. So there's this, 
There's a small, there's a small rural farming town, and the rumor was was there was a farmer that was that was talking bad about the Assyrian government, and so Tiglath-Pileser was going to teach this group a lesson. So he took the army into this small rural farming town, thank Gore, and he found the farmer that was supposedly starting uh, the rumors. And so he got him and his family together in front of everybody, and one by one, he killed each one of that farmer's uh, children. Then he had his wife. Um, intimately assaulted uh, by a group of, Rome, of, of Assyrian soldiers until she died. So, and then right after that, they put his eyes out so that the last thing he saw was the murder of his children and his wife. Um, after that, they cut his ears off, they cut his nose off, uh, and they had already put his eyes out. And they left him alive, actually, as an example. This is what happens when you mess with Nineveh. Okay, So God calls Jonah to speak to Nineveh. Um, now, Jonah is, uh, Jonah is quite reasonable and says, uh, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm, I'm partial to keeping my eyes, my nose, my ears, and really I'd like my skin on my face instead of off my face. So Jonah runs from what God called him to do, and he runs to Joppa, and he boards a boat to Tarshish. And this is where the story gets a little weird. He happens to get on a boat um, with pagan sailors who happen to care about human life more than him. So this storm comes up and he's like, just throw me overboard. He's quite suicidal. The pagan sailors are not, we're going to throw you overboard, bro. You're a human being. We're going to throw our cargo overboard. So these pagan sailors actually prioritize human life over profit. And this is like really confronting because in this story, the pagan sailors have a higher view of human life than God's prophet, which is a whole nother thing. Finally, they acquiesce and they throw him overboard. Of course, he's going to drown, except for the fact that there just happens to be a fish coming by that God provided to save his butt from drowning in the middle of the ocean. When I was a kid, my Sunday school teacher read that story to us, and this is how she applied it. You better do what God says, or God's going to send his judgment in the form of a fish to swallow you, which is absolutely not the point of the story. Uh, when, when you are, uh, with all respect to her, when you're thrown out into the middle of the open ocean and you're definitely going to drown, if God provides a fish, that is hardly God's judgment. That is God's salvation. And so the, the fish comes up and swallows Jonah. And then, and then we find out what Jonah does in the belly of the fish. And the only reason we know is because Jonah was there and no one was else to ver- no one else was there to verify this. But, but when Jonah writes the story and he says, this is what I did in the belly of the fish, supposedly he prayed 10 perfect prayers from the book of Psalms. Like, which, okay. So anyway, so, so he prays these 10 perfect prayers and then God tells the fish to throw up. And, um, and again, that's a problem because if the fish throws up in the middle of the ocean, he's going to drown. But he just so happens to throw up close enough to dry land that he can just walk up on the dry land. And it just so happens to be next to the road that goes to Nineveh. So Jonah sort of gets the idea. And so he, he, he goes to Nineveh and he chooses to obey and consent to God's consent. He says, God, you've asked me to do something. I'm going to do it. And so he finally acquiesces, sort of. He, he actually goes and he preaches the worst sermon ever preached. Um, it, it's, it's, it's only eight words in English. It's only five words in Hebrew. It says, 40 days from now, you're going to be destroyed. See you later. Now, the, the, the problem with this is that it works. And um, it says everybody in Nineveh repented from the greatest to the least, including the king, and even the animals fasted. Well, this is really not what Jonah wanted. And this is where the story tar- starts to take shape as to what God is trying to teach us through the story. In rabbinical tradition, Jonah is in the Bible to show us what not to be. Because Jonah... Uh, acquiesces sort of, preaches the worst sermon ever, and it works, and then you find out why he ran. He didn't run because he wanted to keep his skin. He didn't run because he was afraid. He ran because he knew God was going to be nice to the Ninevites. 
to the Assyrians. And because Jonah thought they were evil, Jonah just assumed God would want to think they were evil because God has to be just like us, right? And so Jonah thinks they're evil, so he assumes God wants to destroy them because Jonah wants to destroy them. But God doesn't want to destroy them. And then Jonah goes, I knew it! I knew you were going to be nice. I knew you were a compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiveness, God. I knew you were a God who repents from evil. So twice in the book of Jonah, Jonah tells us that God repented of evil, which leads to all kinds of questions like, is God allowed to repent of evil? And is God capable of evil? And if God's not capable of evil, why is God repenting of evil? And is God allowed to respond to his own altar calls? Anyway, so there's all (laughs) kinds of things going on. Like, everybody's repenting from the greatest to the least. Even God's repenting. The whole thing is, is, is sort of a, a nightmare. And, and Jonah is upset because God is not nearly as interested in getting his enemies as he is. And turns out God's not nearly as interested in getting you as your enemies are. Turns out God just loves people. And, and in that sense, it's very important that we never speak of God as a projection. A giant projection of our preference. If I don't like it, then God must not like it. And if I don't like it and God doesn't like it, then God's going to get you. What you find in this story is that way of thinking doesn't help anybody. That God is like, why wouldn't I like them just because they're people? I don't dislike them because you dislike them, bro. I like them because they're people. So you're sort of caught up with the story. And Jonah ends up at a place east of the city. And here's how the book of Jonah ends. Jonah is sitting out there hoping he's misheard God. And that God's still going to destroy them anyway. And so God is not going to have that. And the whole story ends with this sort of odd parabolic object lesson around a plant. So if, you, if you're a linear learner instead of a narrative learner, you're already lost. So if you're a linear learner, I did this for you. What we learn in the story is that when we run from God, we run to the strangest places. That when we non-consent to God's consent, God is consenting in love. When we non-consent to God's consent, we end up in some really weird places. You never run from what God wants you to do and end up where you think you want to be. It just doesn't work. I remember years ago, I was working as a counselor at a church. My master's degree is in clinical psychology, so I am qualified to sort your head out. So careful what you say to me. I can see through all. As I was doing that, this young lady came to me. She's probably 18 years old, and she was quite angry, really ticked off, you know. And I said, look, how can I help? She said, Shane, I'm tired of you telling me what to do. I'm tired of the pastor telling me what to do. I'm tired of my parents telling me what to do. I'm tired of God telling me what to do. I'm going to show all of you, and I'm going to go get married. So what was happening was she was in a relationship her parents didn't approve of because the guy was pretty toxic. They said, we don't approve of it. She got irritated with it, and she said, I'm tired of you, my parents, God, the pastor. I'm tired of all of you trying to tell me what to do. I'm going to show all of you, and I'm going to go get married. And my response to that was, was, so your answer to being tired of being told what to do is to enter into an institution designed to have someone else tell you what to do. Good luck. When we run from God, we run to the strangest places. It didn't last that long. She's doing better now. We were there to help pick up the pieces. Because really, honestly, can we just all admit marriage is hard, right? You don't want to enter, you don't want to engage in a marriage at 18 years old under that auspices. It has almost no chance. I mean, seriously. I mean, the average age of death in Jesus' day was 32 years old. So till death do us part was like more doable. Like now we have to. <laughs> Right? Like, uh, like, 
to the, you know, to death do us part in Jesus' day was put up with their crap for another 10 years. You'll die. It'll all get better, right? Now we have to live with them to 84, which is a whole other thing. So if you're here and you're single, I would just say to you, be very careful because the decision has to last a very, very, very long time. And so, and so when you run from God, you run to the strangest places. What, what we also find in this story is that God is generous with his grace. That no matter how much Jonah unconsents, God asks him to do something, he non-consents to the request. No matter how much Jonah non-consents, what we find is that God is always out in front of Jonah offering him a new offer of love, acceptance, a way back. Jonah, you can't, you can run from God, but you can't outrun him, in other words. Like Jonah is always out in front, Jonah's, God's always out in front of Jonah re-consenting in, in love. I, I would also say it this way, that God wants to get us back without paying us back. And that's an important distinctive. That we need to lose all of our punitive language around God. God is not a punitive God. The anger of God is not an active wrath. As a matter of fact, I love the first century church's definition of the wrath of God. They said the wrath of God is being handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. In other words, God, that's, that's beautiful. That is like poetic. That's like Shakespeare and the Hulk having a kid. That is just, that, that the wrath of God is a metaphor for being handed over to the self-inflicted consequences of non-consent to consent. In other words, if God has a plan and you non-consent to that plan, whatever consequence ensues, that is the wrath of God. That God is always wanting to get us back without paying us back. This is illustrated in Jonah. God just wants Jonah to do what he wants him to do. And no matter how much Jonah non-consents, God's out in front of him to get Jonah back without paying him back. You see this in Jesus where they ask Jesus what God is like and he tells a story about a father who has a son who non-consents and then he ends up ruining his life in the pig pen and then he gets tired of the self-inflicted consequences of his non-consent and he comes back but the story is not the father waiting for him to come back so he can pay him back. The story is the father waiting to get him back without paying him back at all. The first century church said the entire Bible can be read in the prodigal son story. A pattern of consent, non-consent, the consequences of that, getting sick of ourselves, coming back and re-consenting, only to find that the father can't wait for us to come back, not to pay us back, but to cook us a meal. That is what's going on in this story, that God wants to get us back without paying us back. We also find that great moves of God start with a genuine revelation of the love of God for us and them. That you can't want mercy for yourself and then judgment for everybody else. You can't say, God save me, God save me, God save me. God get them, God get them, God get them. It just doesn't work. So the whole book ends with this sort of odd object lesson around a plant Let's see what happened and then examine what's happening in us right now because of what happened. So Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in its shade. And he waited to see what would happen to the city. In other words, I think God's still going to destroy them. And I can't wait to see this. They raped our women. They invaded our land. They peeled people's faces off. They deserve to be destroyed. And so Jonah just wants to see what he thinks should happen. Like, if I were God, I would destroy them. And so, God is surely like me. You know, we, we all struggle with this. As the great theologian Tom Shadjack wrote in his, in his movie, Bruce Almighty, there was this guy named Bruce, and Bruce thought he wanted to be God. So, God let him be God over seven square blocks of Buffalo. And within seven weeks, he destroyed seven square blocks just by giving everybody 
everything they thought they wanted, right? So that's the idea. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. If you're a note taker, that's the key line. Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm. So there's a vine and a worm, which chewed the vine so that it withered. And then the sun rose and God provided a scorching east wind. The sun blazed on Jonah's head, so he grew faint and he wanted to die. And he said, it'd be better for me to die than to live. So he's going quite suicidal here all of a sudden. It's not, it's not very good. But God said to Jonah, this is a rhetorical question. Do you have any right to be angry about the vine? Like you don't have anything to do with it. Why are you mad about something you had nothing to do with, bro? It's a rhetorical question. Have you ever asked someone a question and the person you asked just wasn't picking up what you were putting down, you know? God says, hey, do you have any right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. This guy's like a lunatic. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? That's how the book of Jonah ends. The book of Jonah is a sermon. And sermons are not meant to be agreed with or disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. And the way you make people wrestle is by asking questions. He asked Jonah, should I not be concerned about them just because they're people regardless of how they're behaving? Should I not still be... I reached out to you in all of your rebellion. And all I want is for you to be inspired to show that same mercy to others. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Jonah... As concerned as you are about your plant, I'm that concerned about those people. Now, let's look at this. Um, What we learn is we can run from God, but we can't outrun him. No matter how far we get away from the thing, God seems to be out in front of us with his grace. That God wants to get us back without paying us back. But here's where I want to focus this message. What we learn in this story is that it's possible to surrender to God's moral will for our personal lives and still miss God's redemptive plan for the whole world. What we find in this story is that Jonah consented and surrendered to God's will for his personal life while losing sight of God's will for the whole world. And this is what I want to talk to us about as the church at Christ Church. Have we consented to God's moral will and consented and surrendered to God's will for our life? And I think it's Tuesday night, you're in church. I think I'm talking to a group of people who've done that. But the question I want us to ask is this. Have I surrendered to God's moral will for my life, but lost sight of what he's up to in the whole world, especially people not like me? Have I lost sight of God's love for the other the ones that aren't like us, the ones that don't identify as a Christian yet. Do I think God loves Christians and not them? Have I submitted to God's moral will for my life, but I've lost sight of what God is up to in those people? For the spirit of the risen Christ is filling everything in every way, as Ephesians 1 says. In other words, we are not bringing Jesus to Christ church. We are participating in what Christ has always been up to in Christ church and hoping to help people name it. That is what we are up to. Now, this story has sort of a parallel story in Jesus' life. This is the story found in the book of Mark. 
about Jesus leaving Jericho, and he has an encounter with a blind dude named Bartimaeus. Let me show you this. Then they came to Jericho. Just quick context there. Jericho is where rich people lived. It was where the Roman sympathizers lived. It was fortified. A lot of rich people. And outside of rich places like that, you have beggars because those are the people who have money to help the beggars. Yeah, then they came to Jericho as Jesus and his disciples together with a large crowd. Now, I want to, let's be honest. The only people in this story is Jesus and people following Jesus. So it's not Roman people, it's not pagans, it's not the military oppressors, it's Jesus, his disciples, and people following Jesus. We'll call that the church, or the Christians, or the followers of Christ. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man named Bartimaeus, that's the son of Timaeus, sitting by the roadside begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus uh, of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's a whole other sermon for another time. And many rebuked him. Well, hold on, who's there? Jesus, his disciples, and people following Jesus. In other words, the followers of Jesus were rebuking the blind man in their own pursuit of Jesus. And failed to see the irony in that. A group of people who had surrendered to God's moral will for their life failed to see the irony of rebuking the person Jesus cared about in their own pursuit of Jesus. Followers of Jesus rebuking the beggar in their own pursuit. You imagine that? Beggar, shut up! Don't you see Jesus is up to something? In other words, it's possible to surrender to God's moral will for our life and lose sight of what God is up to in the person And he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. Like, in other words, have you all forgotten? I am about him. This is the problem when people say, we're just all about Jesus here. We're just all about Jesus here. Okay, I hope so, actually. I don't mind. But the problem with that statement is, is that Jesus is all about people. And you can't be all about Jesus and forget what Jesus is up to in people. You can't be humble before God and harsh with people. You can't do that. In this story and in the Jonah story, you have people who have surrendered to God's moral will for their life, but they lost sight of what God was up to in the rest of the world, in the nameless beggar, in in the person who is marginalized, in in the Ninevites. We've, We've surrendered to us and lost sight of what God was up to in them. Now, let's, if you're, again, a linear learner, you're starting to lose me. So I, I do linear thought for this. All right, so are we overlooking the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? That's my question. As the church in Christ church, are we overlooking the poor, the marginalized, or the other in our own pursuit of Jesus? And our defense would be, but I have believed in Jesus. And not just that, I'm trying to see the world how Jesus saw the world. I have fully consented and surrendered to God's moral will for my life. Yes, okay. But in the process of that, are we stepping over the beggar in our own pursuit of Jesus? Are we pursuing God's will for us while ignoring his will for the rest of the world? Because maybe pursuing Jesus and loving the world is the same thing. 
Just one quick thought for the Bible nerds. This is Bible nerddom, okay? So, so, so Jesus says, look, I'm going to summarize the whole Bible in, in two statements. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself, okay? In, in Greek, I, I, my, one of my degrees from undergraduate study was in Greek, so I can actually read. If you hand me a Greek New Testament, I can read it, right? I know, nerd alert, right? So if, so if you've ever wondered, I wonder why he has no luck with women. That's why I read Greek. So, so, so if, if, if you look at Greek in the, in the original language there, it's in something called the first attributive position, which means there's a conjunction used. And in first attributive position, the first condition and the second condition are the same thing. And in that sentence, it's first attributive position, which means Jesus said, I'll summarize the whole of scripture in two thoughts. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But loving God and loving them are the same thing. And loving them and loving God is the same thing. You cannot, sep- you cannot love God. And by the way, there's a whole book in the New Testament dedicated to that truth. It's the book of 1 John. If you say you love God, but you see a need, and you know you can meet the need, and you turn your back on that need, how do you think God's love is in that? In other words, you cannot say you love God and not meet the needs of your world. That doesn't work. And so my question for us, because sermons aren't meant to be agreed with, nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. Like if you're listening to this and you're going, I love this, I agree with him. Yeah, okay. Or, I hate this, I disagree with him. Also, yeah, okay, you've missed the point. The point of a sermon is to wrestle with it for application. Have we surrendered to God's moral will for us, but lost sight of the poor, the marginalized, or the other? Because loving God and loving them is the same thing. Which leads me back to Jonah. How does the book of Jonah end? The book of Jonah ends with a guy who has been shown infinite mercy... Wanting God to destroy people. Instead of being inspired by the infinite mercy he's been shown, he's still sitting there wanting God to destroy people because he perceived them as more evil than him. And that is tragic. What is the first and only description of Jonah being happy? I told you to sort of mark it when I went by it. The only description in the entire book of Jonah of him being happy, what was he doing? He was sitting there in his own pleasure under a plant waiting for God to destroy others. That is so weird. (laughs) Think about the story. How many opportunities does Jonah have to be happy? A lot. And Jonah was called by God and he was very happy to be called by God. Nope. And Jonah said no to the call of God and lived to tell about it. And he was really happy to live to tell about it. Uh Uh-uh. And out of all the boats he could have chosen to God on... He got on boats with pagan sailors that loved people more than profit. How lucky is that? I was really happy to be on that boat. Nope. But despite being thrown overboard anyway to drown, there happened to be a fish to save my sorry butt from drowning, even though I'm doing the exact opposite thing I'm supposed to be doing. I was really happy that the fish was there. Uh Uh-uh. And after three days in the fish, God told the fish to throw up. I was so happy about that because it was disgusting in there. I got to be honest with you, it's quite dark and terrifying. And finally, God told the fish to throw up. And I was so, man, I was so relieved that he threw up. I was so happy about that. Uh uh-uh. uh. And when he threw up, he didn't throw up in the ocean. He threw up close to the shore so I could walk up on shore. I was so happy that he threw up close to the shore. No. Nope. And I went to Nineveh and they didn't skin me alive on sight. 
I was so happy to keep my skin and my face and my eyes and my nose and my ears. Man, that was awesome. No. And I preached the worst sermon ever. And it worked. I was so happy. Man, you've never heard a worse sermon in your life. And everybody responded. Boy, I was so happy. No. I was sitting underneath a plant in my own comfort, hoping God destroys people. Now that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Have we ever done that? Maybe not you, but surely you have a friend <laughs> who sat in a heated home with broadband internet and electricity, and instead of meeting the needs of our world, we sat on the internet and Googled things about others to see what kind of trouble they were in, hoping God destroys them. Hey, have we ever spent time on the internet in our own comfort arguing about things that have nothing to do with us and we have really no say-so anyway? Have you, ever, have you ever known somebody to change a relationship with somebody because they disagreed about, I don't know, doctrine? You know, they're sitting in their own comfort hoping God destroys people because they're not like us. You ever known anybody like, I mean, not you, obviously. None of us would do it, but we all have a friend, right, who, who would do that. You know, the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, to spend all of our energy, followers of Jesus should spend all of our energy doing good in our communities and no energy on foolish controversies or any quarrels about the law. I wonder how we're doing with that. I wonder if we're too unlike Jonah, who was very happy sitting in his own comfort, hoping God destroyed people he thought was evil. This is what's going on in this story. Let's say it this way. What is Jonah doing when he's described as happy? He's sitting in his own comfort, hoping God destroys people he thought was evil. Let's take this a step further and put some more language on this. God says, Jonah, you care about a plant. I care about people. You're happy when your plant lives and you're angry when it dies. I'm happy when people live and I'm angry when people die. Jonah, how you feel about this plant is how I feel about people. It's an incredible object lesson. And here's the problem with plants. This is, plants are so difficult. I'll tell you why. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with plants. Who gave Jonah his plant? God did. Nothing wrong with a plant. Here's why plants are so difficult to deal with. There's nothing wrong with them. It's not a matter of right or wrong. It's a matter of permanent or temporary. Plants are temporary. People are permanent. God bless people. And here's what we all need. We all need the grace to enjoy our plants without feeling guilty. Unless they take precedent over people. And that's when it becomes a problem. And here's the problem with New Zealand. It's one of the greatest nations on earth. 
A nation of motor cars, paved roads, stores that prepackage food for us, clean water in our tap, machines that do washing, other machines that do drying, world-class healthcare right down the road, and it's largely free. No one within the sound of my voice right now is afraid of bankruptcy because you get sick. This is New Zealand, man. When I hear Kiwis complain about New Zealand, like, where are you going to go? <laughs> I'm American. If we get sick, we could go broke. We ain't never heard of this. Kiwis are born with like four weeks vacation, 15 days of sick leave, five days of just I feel mentally stressed. And you have to get paid loading on top of your vacation so that you have enough money to enjoy the vacation. This place is awesome. I'm a fan of it. You know what I love? I love, I love broadband internet service. I think it's great. I do. In most cases, the world is better because of it. 400 years ago, Friday Night Entertainment was strapping up the village betrayer and disemboweling him in front of everybody. Netflix is better. I'm a fan of Netflix. I love it. You know, I, I have an app on my phone called KO. KO is an Australian thing that allows me to watch live American sport wherever I am on my phone. I love it. I love it. But not too long ago, I was on the road from Tokoroa to Auckland. Do you know how many Ks on that road has service? Not many. And I can tell you, it's irritating. Have you, have you ever lost your data signal on your phone? Ho! Oh! Ha! Man! You ever, you ever, you ever just, you, you, and you can't get it, you, and what do you do? You restart the phone, because that's all we know how to do. You restart the phone, the data signal's still not there. How long does that go before you get really irritated? And if it goes too long, who do you got to call? You got to call Spark or, or Telstra, whoever. Like flipping Telstra, right? You got to call them. It'd be a hold forever for no help. Hey, have you ever, you ever had the Wi-Fi go out at your house? And that's when you realize how much is attached to it, right? You know how irritating that is? Plant. God says... How you, as irritated as you are when your Wi-Fi goes out, as irritated as you are when the data signal goes out, how you feel about that is how frustrated I am when people die. How you feel about your plants is how I feel about people. Plants aren't bad. They're just temporary. Money. Money's a plant. And I hope you have a lot of it. I do. I hope every one of you are blessed. I'm serious. I want all of you to have raises and promotions and the best jobs and, and, and the best abundance so you can be a blessing to others. I do. But money comes. Money goes. People stay. God bless people. And we need to have the grace to enjoy our money unless it takes precedence over the permanent, which is people. Jobs come. Jobs go. People stay. God bless people. Promotion comes. Promotion goes. People stay. God bless people. Here's another plant, doctrines. 
Doctrines in general are temporary. Jesus is the Christ. He was crucified. The resurrection is true. Those are the three that have stood the test of time. Almost every other belief has been rethought, reimagined, and in your own story. Since in the last 30 years, you've thought, you've changed how you thought about certain things, and that's called growth. That's awesome. Doctrines come. Doctrines go. People stay. We should be able to discuss doctrine but defend love at all costs because the people are permanent. We can't be dividing relationship over disagreement over petty things. Are you kidding me? Come on. It's plants or people. God says, as irritated as you are about that doctrine or that money or that promotion or that... Hey, I was, I, I was coming, I was on my way here today, and I swear, I have not been here since March 2019, and they're still fixing the same road. <laughs> same road! It's been three years! Kingdoms have risen and fallen! Christ Church building one road! irritating <laughs> but I also realized that the worst problem in Christ church is whoever designed the roads thought no one would ever show up they were like surprised hey people are here right as irritated as we get about that God says that's how irritated I am when people don't get it plants come plants go people stay God bless the people so let's ask a few questions about this to close this out and Ask where we are. Because when you open the scripture, you want to ask what happened. And then more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of that. Uh, let's say it this way. How do we actually think about our enemies? And I'm not talking about just a mental. Hey, the way Jesus saw God in the world was don't just love your friends. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father in heaven. Twice in the same sermon, Jesus tied our basic disposition and conflict to whether we'll be known as children of God or not. So here's my question. How do we actually think about our enemies? How do we... <laughs> I keep getting big thoughts confirmed by heavenly signs. Are, are, we, are we still us and them thinkers? Like if any city in the world shouldn't be us and them thinkers, it should be Christchurch. Because an us and them thinker shot up a mosque. And that happens when we think of us and them and God loves me more than them. And uh-uh, God loves them because they're people. Right? Uh, or, or are we acting for temporary pursuit or for permanent progress? Do we live for our plants or do we live for people? And the grace is, is to be able to enjoy our plants because God gave them to us. Unless they take precedence over people. Uh, is there any place we've forgotten our fish? That's an important thought. Like, is there any place that we've, is there any place that we've non-consented and we're living in a massive consequence of that non-consent only to find that God was present with us in it and he delivered us from it and the only thing he asked is, be inspired by this mercy to be merciful to others. And then we forget our fish. We want mercy for ourselves, but judgment for them. God save me. God save me. God get them. No. May we never forget our fish story. Or we'll lose sight of our responsibility in their story. Let's say it this way. 
Do we believe or do we really care? It's one thing to believe in Jesus. It's a whole nother thing to journey to see the world, how Jesus saw the world. I realize you're going to forget 96% of everything I say by Friday. Um, and that's okay. It's just part of psychology. So they say great teachers can summarize whole things into one statement that can be remembered. So here's the one thing I want us to wrestle with. Plant or people? Plant or people? If we're going to be a Christ-centered group of people in Christ church, we have to choose to prioritize people over plants. Not because plants are evil, but because they're temporary. May we have the grace to enjoy our plants but never at the expense of people. To be the kind of Christ-centered group of people that we need to be in Christ church, may we be people who put permanence in its right place. Plants come, plants go, people stay. God bless the people. And may we be that group of people who puts all of our energy to doing good to people and no energy in foolish controversies or any quarrels about the law. Because the plants are great, but the people are better. May we be people-centered and never, ever plant-centered. Let me pray for you. Lord, we love you. We honor you. We proclaim you're king. There's none like you. Lord, give us the courage to see things different, the irresistible urge to respond to what we see. May we prioritize people instead of plants. If you, if you right there where you're seated, I want you to ask yourself a question. Holy Spirit, would you reveal to me where I've stepped over people in my own pursuit of you? Have I surrendered to your moral will for my life while losing sight of your redemptive plan for the whole world? Have I honored plants instead of people? Lord, would you reveal that to us and give us the urge to respond? Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be part of your night. Thank you all for coming out. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection is central, and scriptures got bigger, not smaller. May we not only surrender to God's moral will for our life, but also keep in mind God's redemptive plan for the whole world. And may we be people-centered, never plant-centered, for Jesus is not somebody to believe in. He's someone to shape how we see all things. May we forever honor people instead of plants. Until I see you next time, grace and peace, everybody.